So I'm going to talk about uh, PCARN. And my overview, I'm going to describe PCARN, which is a pediatric emergency care apply research network. It's been around for since 2001, and I've been involved in it since 2001. And I'm going to describe why we need it and some projects that might uh, be of interest to you. So why do we need a multi-centered research network? Well, first of all, um, who do we need it in? Uh, emergency medicine is a little bit of a different animal to most other areas in pediatrics. We cross medicine, we cross surgery. Um, we uh, are the experts in the first two hours of any emergency. And then we like to give them to the PICU or give them to somebody else. Or, but, you know, and so there's a lot of drugs and there's a lot of treatments that in the first two hours we really don't know the right treatment. Should we give this much epi? Should we be doing chest compressions like this? Should we be focusing on the airway? We kind of think we should, but the American Heart Association is pushing us the other way. But, um, you know, there are lots and lots of questions to be answered. And so, um, and right now, um, we, and for the last few years, we just kind of basically winged it. We, we looked at adult studies and we extrapolated from adult studies. And, and you guys, especially neonatologists, really can, can speak to this. And that's probably why the neonatal network came about. So some of the studies that we have actually uh, looked at is, are um, cardiac arrest, cooling down brains, hypothermia after cardiac arrest, a study that has, has finished. Uh, that involved an, an intensivist who is the PI of that from University of Michigan. Uh, we looked at a study of uh, head CTs, when not to do a CAT scan in kids after head injury. We enrolled 57,000 children around the country in that study um, over two and a half years. And we're currently studying seizures. Um, we studied uh, initial status epilepticus. Now we're starting refractory, studying refractory status epilepticus. We're also studying things like ma magnesium for sickle cell pain, DKA. So you can see there's a theme here of the acute part of a lot of different of specialties. So uh, th there was a, a network in pediatric emergency medicine that was loosely uh, founded, that wasn't funded. It was at, by the AAP. And the members of that ne network lobbied very hard and found a senator who was really interested and, and managed to get some seed funding for, uh, for PCARN in 2001. And uh, so it, it became the first federally funded pediatric emergency care network in the U.S. And uh, basically the funding was uh, for now 18 different hospitals for six different EMS sites. Um, and this funding is infrastructure funding only. It doesn't fund studies. We have to go out and get funding from the NIH. And the infrastructure that it funds is it funds a full-time research coordinator at each of the sites plus a site that has an EMS component to it. It funds a half-time research, half research coordinator for EMS. And it funds some of the PI's time at the site as well. So that gives you the baseline funding. It also funds uh, time to go to meetings and meet so we can actually develop and move forward with the infrastructure. So that was really key for us um, in, in starting out with PCARN. First 10 years, uh, it's a young field. It started in the 80s. Uh, the loosely, loosely funded network started in the, in the 90s. It was really hard to attract promising investigators to our network. We had like two people who had written grants. That was really it. Um, and so we asked them to keep writing grants. Um, we actually started to self-fund our first work. And I'll describe one of the first self-funded studies that really made a big difference and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, there was uh, lots of volunteerism, very little grant funding. When we sent... Um, grant applications to the NIH. Remember, there's no emergency medicine NIH home. So we would have to send it to the subspecialty. So when we sent grant grants into the NIH, we would get back comments like, 
oh, you can't ca capture kids in the emergency department. They're not there long. I mean, like just comments of like, what do you, what, what do you say with that? You know? So we realized pretty soon that we would have to just do a study and be successful at it and use that as evidence that yes, we are a, a real group and we can capture kids and we can move forward to these types of studies. So um, these are the, these are the um, institutes now that fund our work um, and uh, we've been pretty successful. Here's our structure. Uh, it's a little bit uh, complex, so um, bear with me. I'm not gonna go into a huge amount of detail, but just to show you that there's a steering committee. We're pretty democratic, uh, but yet we try to be nimble. Um, we have 18 members of the steering committee, one from each of the hospital, and each one gets a say in the science. Um, we do have uh, the PIs down here. Uh, Peter Diane from Columbia, me from Nationwide, Jim Chamberlain from DC Children's. Um, and uh, so these are the PIs, and the PIs get together and have the fiduciary responsibility for the grant. And so we decide science, but we also decide other things as well. And then we have our data coordinating center who help move pro pro products forward uh, for us, uh, mostly grants. Um, and if you come to us with a grant, we will move it uh, through all of these subcommittees, which is a lot of work, but we can, be, we can do this within six weeks, but it almost kills us. But if there's a short turnaround RFA and somebody comes to it and it's in our sweet spot, we can do it. And, and anybody can come to us. You don't have to be part of a PCARN hospital. About 30% of our studies are from investigators outside of PCARN who come with a two-page two proposal, and then they move forward within the network. So um, I think that's important to know. Um, so this is just shows you uh, kind of the pipeline. So this is really since 2003, because really before that we didn't do a whole lot except for try and get that first study off the ground. So uh, concept is a really low bar. It's a two-pager telling us your objectives, your hypothesis, how, why you think it's important for PCARN and how you're gonna fund it. Um, and we'll help you go out and get that funding. Um, so once it's approved, um, then it moves forward uh, through the protocol approval phase, which where it goes to all those subcommittees. Everybody gives their input, and we really shape it into a really, um, a really good grant usually. Um, and then it, there are voting points along all of these um, times. The grant is submitted, and the grant is funded. So we actually have a funding rate of, of approximately 70% with several grants out, which is pretty good in this NIH era. Who knows what will happen in the future? But, um, but you can see that these, when, when a grant goes to the NIH, they know it's gone through this process, because we, we're really good at educating them about what, what we do, and we invite program officers to our meetings regularly so they see what's going on. This just shows some of the infrastructure funding. So the infrastructure funding is the green line along here. And you can see right, we weren't getting grants initially even though we started in 2001. But once we got started getting our first grant, that built on the next grant and the next grant. And so now we, uh, this is how we uh, explain our return on investment to HRSA, that we bring in approximately $2 in uh, NIH funding for every $1 in infrastructure that HRSA bring, puts into us. So, that helps us. It also helps each site to have like a baseline core infrastructure that they can build on. Industry comes to you, other people come to you. It's not just PCARN studies that happen. Um, these are just some publications by year. Again, this is how we're measured. We're measured by grants, funded, and publications. Um, so some of the research that we do, uh, we look at head trauma, uh, abdominal trauma, C-spine, knowledge translation, and actually, we've started moving into suicide and um, uh, screening studies, which uh, made a few of our members a little 
upset, but, but it's like, you know, that's pretty controversial. But, you know, people didn't think we should be doing in, injury prevention in the ED. Gary, Gary's here. But, you know, now we're doing injury prevention in the ED because they don't go anywhere else. So um, anyway, so um, and then some of the uh, medical, medical research uh, were, are these uh, gastroenteritis is, is a probiotic, a randomized control trial of a probiotic for gastroenteritis, sickle cell pain. So we've had net, other networks who didn't quite succeed as networks, or they didn't succeed in a particular study, come to us and say, can you put this study through PCARN? And so, um, and then there being collaborations of a husband who is an endocrinologist and a wife who's an emergency physician who decided to come up with the DKA study, and a husband who's, uh, uh, you know, another specialty, a hemoncologist and a wife who's an emergency physician who came up with a magnesium for sickle cell pain study. So there's a lot of husband-wife co collaborations that come in. And, uh, one's first author, one's last author. <laughs> so, it's, uh, yeah, Juan, you could. <laughs> so anyway, some of the questions that we that we've answered: um, Do steroids work for children with bronchiolitis? And, and I, I'm actually not going to go into these because I'm going to explain them all to you now. So I'm not going to read this out. So just to show you some of the studies that, that really were practice changing for us. Um, so this is one of our first studies. This is when we were all sitting around making law, bylaws and thinking, gosh, how are we ever going to do anything? And Howard Cornelli, who's um, an investigator from University of Utah, had wanted to do this study for several years. So um, back in the 90s, um, Suzanne Shu, who's an investigator at Sick Children's in Toronto, published a study saying that a single dose of a steroid, dexamethasone, for kids with bronchiolitis resulted in uh, shorter hospital stays, less hospitalization, etc. And so I was like, great, we got something that we can give kids for bronchiolitis because there's nothing else that we can give them. And so we started giving them steroids for bronchiolitis. John, you were probably giving them steroids for bronchiolitis. Um, certainly emergency physicians were because this was an emergency medicine publication that was kind of made a lot of throughout the ED world. However, it was single site. It wasn't very well powered and the differences were small. So there was a call for a large multi-site study. So what we did was we replicated her methodology um, and we did this at uh, 20 emergency departments over three seasons, and we did it with infrastructure funding because we didn't have, we went to the NIH and they're like, <laughs> so eventually we ended up getting some funding at the end once we'd started. Um, and our primary outcome was the same as hers, hospital admission. And our conclusion was that uh, one milligram per kilo of oral dex, dexamethasone did not significantly alter the rate of hospital admission and respiratory status after four hours or of observation or later outcomes. So this actually changed practice in emergency medicine. I'm not sure if it changed practices in general pediatricians' offices, but certainly in our world it did. And what was really interesting was one of my colleagues, uh, I was working at the time at University of Michigan, and we were all giving you know, kids with, de with bronchiolitis dexamethasone, and I said to my colleagues, look, we want to do this study. It'll require you agreeing to placebo versus dexamethasone for your patients. I had two of my colleagues say, absolutely not. I'm going to deprive my patients. I believe it works. So, so we couldn't do the study at University of Michigan. Now those people are, giving, are not giving dex to their patients anymore. But anyway, it's, just, it's really interesting how people become so ingrained and hold on to what they've known for years. So, so, um, and we found that with some studies, we just not every site can participate because people really believe that that treatment works. So this is uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, 
we really feel like this has really changed practice in emergency departments, but it also has helped us give some credibility to the, net, to the network. Um, the next study, uh, Juan, you can let me know when I'm getting close. Okay. So the next study that I wanted to talk about, um, this is uh, in deference to Dr. Z. I figured we, we should have some neurology in here. But um, so um, this is pediatric seizures. So this is a study I call the Coke-Pepsi study, okay? Because lorazepam versus diazepam. In fact, the, the, NI, the NIH and the FDA came to us and said, lorazepam is not labeled for use in children. And I was like, what? It's given all the time for seizures. I've been watching it be given all the time. And they're like, no, diazepam is labeled for children. We need this, this study done to label lorazepam for children. And we're like, well, why are you asking us? And they said, well, the drug companies aren't going to do it because they're already making money from the drug. And so it's not, they, we're not giving them enough money to make it worthwhile. So, so we agreed to do this. Um, and so uh, one of the things that we did with this was this became the first study that we did uh, in the US using a federal exception from informed consent. So uh, if you remember the PADI, the PADI defibrillator trials, uh, some of the trials that were done for cardiac arrest, out of hospital cardiac arrest, the change practice, those were done without asking that patient, wake up, wake up, can I enroll you in a study? No, <laughs> they randomized them to like defibrillators. And actually they stopped the trial early because defibrillators worked. We couldn't do that in kids because we weren't ever allowed to not get consent. So we've always been extrapolating these emergency type studies to kids, from adults to kids. And so this is the first time that that uh, our IRB at University of Michigan ch changed its ruling and many other IRBs changed their rulings and said, okay, we understand, we will consider a study like this because we believe that status epilepticus is truly an emergency and they need to get the medication in within five to 10 minutes and you don't have time to ask the parent for and to describe the study to them in a way that's this true informed consent. So, and, and also what happens is a lot of times the parents are not with the child. So they, they felt like the study would not be done. The study was in the best interests of children. And so, so we did the study. Um, and uh, it was actually, the parents, no parents afterwards complained about it because we were still giving two drugs. There was no placebo involved. The par parents tend to get a little more upset about placebos. Um, and so that's why I called it the Coke and Pepsi trial because I really didn't know which one was better, though our neurologists felt lorazepam was better and our general emergency physicians felt diazepam was better. Turns out there was really no difference in efficacy or safety. Um, now, length of action is different. There, was, there is difference, as you know, in length of action. So if you want your seizing child to sleep all night and not wake you up, you give them lorazepam. So, but the other, the other important difference with this is that lorazepam needs to be refrigerated. So in the pre-hospital setting, they don't, they don't have fridges and ambulances for the most part. So this was going to pose a problem if we really found out that lorazepam was really, truly superior. We would, that might call, cause an extra cost to take lorazepam into the, into the ambulances because there's a big push now to stopping seizures in the pre-hospital setting. So anyway, so that was another study that we did. Um, and this is an ongoing study with another large adult research network called the NET, which is funded through NINDS, National Institute for Neurologic Disorders and Stroke. Um, there are probably about 50 sites involved in this around, around the world, um, mostly in the US. And it's, uh, so we moved on from um, 
the initial status epilepticus, and now we're moving on to refractory status epilepticus. So you have a child who's seizing, you've given them the first dose of lorazepam, you give them a second dose of lorazepam, they're still seizing. What drug do you choose? There's no really good evidence. I mean, in the US, most people will choose phosphenatoin, but in the younger kid, maybe they'll use, choose phenobarbital. Um, in, in Europe, they tend to go in older kids or kids over two for valproic acid. Um, and in some countries in, in Australia, they tend to go for Keppera. So, you know, there's really no good evidence uh, which drug actually makes a difference. It's all based on the local practice. So we're doing this randomized control trial. It's blinded. Um, and it's using a federal exception from informed consent. And uh, they really didn't think we'd get many uh, pediatric patients in this. Um, and this is just, uh, you can read this later on because you'll have a copy of these, just looking at the different, the three different drugs and uh, you know, how safe they are, et cetera, and what types of seizures they treat. Um, but the primary outcome was to determine the most effective and are the least effective treatment of benzo-refractory status epilepticus amongst patients aged older than two years. We really debated as to whether we would actually be part of this study because we didn't want a partial answer that didn't really answer it for kids. So we decided if we're going to be part of this study, we're going to need to go all out, recruit as many pediatric patients so we can answer the question in kids and not just have a hybrid answer that includes adults and kids. So, so that's what we did. Um, we included their three treatment arms. And we included, um, and here's our primary outcome, clinical cessation of status epilepticus by the absence of clinical apparent seizures. Believe me, this is harder than it looks. You can tell, you know, it's like, is he seizing now? Is he seizing? <laughs> so and at, this is at 60 minutes. So uh, study design, it's a Bayesian adaptive design. We're looking to get about 800 children around, or 800 patients around the country. Um, and we have three groups of patients, and we're actually way ahead on our pediatric group, which is great because we're, we are hoping to answer the question in kids. So we have 244 enrolled patients. Um, we're on target for enrolling younger adults. We're ahead on, with kids and older adults, just we don't seem to get them as much. So the, this is NET and PCARN together, working together, um, and NET is based at University of Michigan, so I happen to have very close ties with the leaders of that network. So. It's, um, it's actually a very neat study. So we'll, we'll headline news in about a year, I suppose, hopefully, if it continues. So um, I'm going to move on to the pediatric traumatic brain injury prediction rule. And then this is probably what PCARN is best known for, um, at least in emergency departments around the world. So, uh, so I, I'm going to give you a case. Um, a six-year-old falls full four feet from a tree. Positive loss of consciousness on, awake, on exam, he's awake and alert. Um, there's a mini golf ball sized forehead hematoma. What are you going to do? Are you going to do a CT scan or no CT scan? Or who would do a CT scan? Okay. Okay, and who would do a no CT scan? Is there anyone here who would wait, observe for a while? Okay. Okay, and so there's no absolute right or wrong answer to this question, um, as there probably isn't for most questions. So, but, but this is why we, we decided to look at, at um, CT scanning rates. So we looked at the CT scanning rates at all uh, 25 of the hospitals that were involved in this study, and they range from 10% to 70% for the same type of patient. So you can see the variability. A, a, a rule was really needed. Um, so. Um, so what's the controversy over CT for minor blunt head trauma? 
you don't want to miss something. You want to make sure you don't miss that, sub, that epidural hematoma. It might not be a big deal if you miss a, a small subdural because, you know, it's not, what are you going to do about it anyway? Um, we don't even mind if you miss a skull fracture because most of the time those kids are fine. The other thing is clinical assessment is difficult in young kids. So in the previous rules, once you get under two, there's not enough kids in those rules. So people usually say, if you're worried, get a CT scan. So there wasn't any real evidence around the less than two-year-old group. So we found that those kids were getting really uh, CT'd excessively. And then the risk of um, uh, lethal malignancy, which has been uh, written up a few times since this came out, um, and then transport outside the ED sedation cost. And the, low, the very, very low risk for something bad going on. So we decided to derive a clinical decision rule to accurately identify children at near zero risk of clinically important TBI with high accuracy of wide generability. And our outcome measure was clinically important TBI. So it wasn't just the ditzel you see on the CT that you wouldn't have seen 15 years ago because the scanners are way better now. Um, it's uh, death from TBI, a neurosurgical procedure, intubation for more than 24 hours, because sometimes they get intubated less than 24 hours if they're sedated for the CT. Um, positive CT with hospitalization greater than two nights. So this was a, a study done, uh, as I say, 25 sites. Uh, we were a bigger network then. It was also done at sites that were really small. So the Upper Peninsula in Marquette, which sees 4,000 children participate in this. Hurley Medical Center, which is not a children's hospital, which sees 30,000 kids in their ED, mostly has general emergency medicine practitioners. They partic participate in this. So there are a lot of non-children's hospitals ED participating in this, which is actually a very good thing for generalizability. Um, so we uh, ended up enrolling uh, children with a Glasgow Coma score of 14 to 15. Now we captured everybody, but we wanted to focus on that kid who was really not that sick, but who had a history that might sway some people to do a CT and some people not, and get some evidence around it. Um, we enrolled 42,000 um, in real time, and we missed about 21%. And this is, if, we miss, if you missed more than 20 or 30% at your site, you're kind of reviewed and two or three sites were knocked out because they kept missing patients because we wanted to avoid as much bias as possible and as get, get as many eligible patients as possible. And then we went back and looked at those 11,000 to see what they looked like. Or were they really different from the population that we enrolled? And then we had a, a derivation set for the rule and a validation set, and now it's being validated in real life as well. The risk, what's important here is the risk of clinically important TBI is like less than 1% for these kids. And these are like GCS, when I say GCS of 14 to 15, it means that you're basically just a little confused. That's really it. You know, you don't, you're not like completely out, not following commands. You're just a little confused. You're, the top score you can get is 15. And if you're a little confused, you get a 14. So, so these are kids who aren't really that sick. Um, so the risk is pretty low, so that's why you need huge numbers and you need a network to get huge numbers in a short period of time. So this was published in The Lancet in 2009. Um, and uh, the rule here has six clinical aspects that, that uh, tell you whether, they tell you not to get a CT. So if no to all of these questions, then CT not recommended. So one of the big things about this rule is we had a nice, robust rule for children less than two years. So if a child less than two years does not have a severe mechanism injury, has a GCS of, does not have a GCS of 14, does not, is acting normally per parent, doesn't have a palpable skull fracture, and has uh, a hematoma only on the frontal area but not in the occipital, parietal, temporal scalp, 
area, you can basically say to them the risk of radiation is greater than the risk of you having something going on in your head and he really doesn't need a CT scan. Um, and so what is interesting about children less than two years is uh, vomiting is not in there. We found vomiting was not really predictive of something going on in their heads. Um, we found a lot of kids were vomiting just because they were crying and kids under two vomit for lots of different reasons. So vomiting was really not one of those things in there. But we did find that not acting normally per parent was something that was very important. And I think that kind of links to maybe an older kid having a headache or something. Do you know what I mean? They can't tell you but they're just not acting normally. So, And then children two to 18 years, again, severe mechanism of injury. This is like uh, a bad car accident. Somebody is ejected or there's a death in the car, a uh, golf club or a high-speed golf ball to your head, that type of thing. It's pretty severe. A pedestrian hit by a car going over 20 miles an hour. So um, it would be obvious. Uh, history of loss of consciousness. Um, so if, if they don't have any of these things, um, GCS of 14, history of vomiting, severe headaches, signs of basal skull fracture, but they don't have any of these things after a head injury, then we, we actually tell them that they're extremely low risk for, um, for anything going on in their head and we usually don't do the CT. The issue is the middle group, the ones that have like one, maybe just isolated loss of consciousness, look fantastic in your ER, just like this kid did, um, but, you know, is in that middle risk group. So I don't know if you guys can see this, but this is the middle risk group here. So, so this kid here, um, the, the falling from four feet from a tree, had a positive loss of consciousness. So here we are, we're going down the algorithm, GCS of 14, other signs of ultra mental status, no. Signs of basal skull fracture, no. So we go down to this group here, history of loss of consciousness, history of vomiting. He didn't have vomiting, he didn't have severe mechanism of injury, he didn't have a severe headache, but he did have a history of loss of consciousness. So he goes over into this middle risk group, which is still 0.8% risk of clinically important TBI. But now we're dealing with observation versus CT on the basis of other clinical factors, including physician experience, multiple versus isolated findings, worsening symptoms, parental preference. And so because of this, as we were starting this study with 25 PIs around the country, we all built in questions about all these isolated findings because we knew that this was going to be the meat of the study in some ways. You know, we'll have the rule and that will tell us the extremes, but what about those middle, that middle kid where most kids fall into that? So we uh, looked at the effect of observation on CT after um, blunt head trauma and found that it, controlling for severity, if those children in, in the cohort who uh, were observed for a few hours, because we, we collected the data, uh, did, did not end up getting as many CTs and didn't have a bad outcome because of it. So uh, that really pushes for observation. And this was, uh, we looked at like, different times of observation, I believe it was like four hours or so. We also uh, built in lots of other, there were 22 papers that came out of this data set. Um, and they're all built in a priori, uh, except for the television falling on somebody's heads, which made it on some TV channels. <laughs> so the, like 200 kids from the data set died because TVs fell on their heads, so that was pretty sad. But anyway, so somebody wrote a paper about it. So anyway, when you got 57,000 kids, you know, you can find a lot of things. So um, anyway, so lo looking at isolated severe injury mechanism, isolated scalp hematomas, vo isolated vomiting, isolated loss of consciousness, our, our kid that I just presented, 
um, the take-home findings is are really that these kids are really not at much higher risk and they may benefit from observation. Um, and it, it all depends on whether you think that parent is reliable and using your common sense as well. But at least you have a little bit more evidence on which to base some of those decisions. We also looked at uh, bleeding disorders and VP shunts. And then we looked at incidental findings, because of course when you do that many CTs, you're going to find some arachnoid cysts. So um, that was an interesting, but that's, a, that's uh, if you look at our uh, bibliography, you can find those papers on it. Okay, so moving on to febrile infants. Um, so this is a, a, a topic near and dear to, I think, everybody's heart. So this is a study, uh, this, is, this study is on its third uh, round of funding, and it's called RNA Transcriptional Profiling for Diagnosis of Serious Bacterial Illnesses in Young Febrile Infants. And we all know fever is a very common reason for ED visits in children. Uh, only a really small proportion have serious bacterial illness, and uh, those with, who are less than 60 days have the highest risk. And so the diagnosis requires cultures, and we've all seen the high false positive rate and the number of contaminants depending on a lot of a host of factors. Um, and then there's an uncertain false negative rate, and of course you have the two to three days that you have to wait for, for the cultures to come back and until you know for sure that they're okay to either send home or not continue to give rosefin to. So um, several of our investigators became very interested in, in this. Octavia Ramilo, um, who is an infectious disease um, pediatrician um, who works at Nationwide now, uh, is extremely interested in this, and so is one of our emergency physicians, and they're not married, but <laughs> his name is Prashant Mahajan. He's uh, actually moved to University of Michigan. And so they actually have been funded now for the third time with an over-the-caps um, award to, to continue to look at our uh, diagnostic biosignatures. And so the, the thought is that, the, that you would quantify the host response by measuring gene expression with microarray techniques. And different microbes are recognized by pathogen-specific re receptors and stimulate a distinct immune response. So it's a kind of a different paradigm. Um, and we wanted to know, can we use this technology to differentiate SBIs from non-SBIs? And can we collect blood at all these EDs around the countries, transport it safely and stably to this lab, and then are they able to extract usable um, mRNA? And, and so that was the first study, just the feasibility of doing it. And the answer was yes. So the second study was, then let's do it. And um, we had consented over 2,000 infants. Um, and uh, we, this was published recently in JAMA, showing that we actually can distinguish um, RNA biosignatures in febrile infants, and this, this led the way for the NIH to fund a much larger study where we're actually getting blood on day one, and then actually on day two of hospitalization for a certain cohort, just to look at the changes over time. So um, this has been really exciting, and a, a lot of people are interested in this work. So, and it's a, collabor a collaboration of many different places. So the conclusions from this is gene expression analysis using RNA biosignatures confirms the potential of this technology for distinguishing young febrile infants with SBI from those with apt bacterial illness. And you know, obviously the goal, the hope is way into the future that maybe this could replace uh, gold um, cultures as the reference standard. Uh, maybe there'll be something else that comes along. So, so just uh, I'm just going to give you a one one liner on several other studies that that are happening. So this is IV magnesium for sickle cell vasoclusive crisis. Um, this is the magic trial. This is a, a husband-wife collaboration. 
Um, and, um, and basically it was to use IV magnesium to try and shorten the duration of pain crisis and to see if that resulted in lower opiate use. And there were some, several single center studies that were really promising for this. And the, um, the uh, several heme uh, hematologists came to us and said, you know, is it okay if we use your network? We said, go ahead, put a, a project through. And it turns out they were, they had to approach these kids early on in their stay while they were still in the ED. And so it worked to have, to have them enrolled in the network. So, so this actually ended up being a negative trial with no difference, uh, unfortunately, because we're all hoping that there would be something that would help these kids not get so many opioids. So uh, this is published in blood, or will be published shortly in blood. Uh, this study hasn't been published yet. It's just finishing up. And it's looking at fluid therapy in DKA. And, and we know that the pendulum has shifted on this over the years. You know, you don't, several people believe you shouldn't rehydrate them fast um, because that might encourage uh, the development of DKA and, and uh, injury and brain injury. And some people believe that they are so dehydrated that you have to do that, otherwise, you can have worsening brain injury. And so we've actually seen the opinions around the country because we've talked with endocrinologists to try and get the study done around the country. And there are polar opposite opinions around the country. And some people just wouldn't participate. So this is a really uh, interesting trial because we actually there should be a practice variation manuscript published from it early on. But I think they're working on that now. So. So we do, it, it has finished up. Their outcome measure was uh, GCS and uh, brain, brain injury. And so uh, the its goal is to identify a more ideal fluid management strategy for children with DKA. And you'll see the results of this presented at PAS if you're at PAS. Probiotics for acute gastroenteritis. Um, so again, that's another study that is being done in uh, Canada. A lot of uh, our Canadian network, uh, who is very, we know them very well, we usually try and see what studies they're doing so we don't duplicate their studies, or we try and work with them with the same outcome measure so we can compare the studies. Um, otherwise, it's just really confusing for everybody. So, they, so actually, the Canadian uh, investigator is a PR, one of the co-investigators on this. So this is just for children who have uh, mild to moderate um, diarrhea. And it's a large trial um, to determine efficacy and side effects um, in children three to 48 months of the ED. And they get five days of the FDA-approved um, um, probiotic or a placebo. And it's interesting. A lot of parents are giving their kids probiotics anyway. So you know, in places like Ann Arbor, about half the kids are ineligible because they're like getting them at home anyway. So, so it's, it's happening anyway, and it's, but, but other places, they're not getting it. So, so we're about halfway through enrolling for that. And then this is what I, I was talking about. You know, you, we're starting to see a lot more screening studies coming through. And we have a research agenda. And our research agenda is very broad. And it, it includes mental health. And so uh, the, the, this uh, request for applications came out with a six-week turnaround. And it was to validate the NIAAA two-question alcohol screen. And they wanted, a, they wanted an ED site for it. And so uh, we, we uh, sent an application, and actually from Hasbro Children's, and uh, we were funded. And um, so this is our first foray into screening in REDs in, through PCARN. And we did manage to enroll 5,000 teens, and now we're following them up over a few years. And so the uh, results of this, again, you'll probably see in the next year or so. Sorry, I can't, some of these results are not out yet. So, um, And this is a, one, one more, uh, is a, Screen for teens at risk for suicide. So it turns out that 
Children who actually are successful at committing suicide, a lot of them, a large percentage of them, um, have never uh, have been into an emergency department in some shape or form. Now, some of them haven't been there saying, "I want to kill myself." They're there because of an injury, or because, or they're there because of something else. But so the thought is, if you screen a lot of the children coming to emergency departments, you can actually. Uh, put them into risk groups and try and manage them and maybe avoid some of these suicidal events later. So this was a study that um, the National Institute of Mental Health put out with a short turnaround RFA. And they actually wrote um, in the RFA that PCARN would be a great place to do this. Not quite in that, but they listed um, PCARN in it. And so I happened to be the chair of PCARN at the time. And uh, there was a lot of there was a little bit of anti-screening sentiment in PCAR because we were already doing so many screening studies and I got all these calls from suicide researchers around the country and they all thought they could try and work their, their particular project through PCAR and we don't have that philosophy. We take one project and we build it and make it great and then submit it for funding. So, so what, that was very interesting because we had to get like um, the leaders from around the country who wanted to work on this. And so there were like four people who led it, one person who was in charge of this, one person in charge of that. But it actually worked very well, and they went in and we got the application. It was like a $10 million uh, three-year application. And it's moving forward and has the, uh, also includes the um, Indian population as well, the American Indian population in White, in White River in Baltimore. So um, it's, we're, we're accruing patients at a uh, pretty fast rate for this one. So, okay. I'm looking at my time, nearly done. The last thing, um, we actually have moved into the area of report cards and quality improvement because that's really, that's really important and we're seeing that happen more and more. Um, we're, being, we're being measured and so we felt like we should actually look at the measurements that we need to take scientifically and then measure ourselves and benchmark ourselves against other institutions. So we have eight sites who directly transfer all of their data from every single ED visit to our data coordinating center in, at the University of Utah. And then what happens is a, a report card is sent to individual clinicians showing them, here's how long it took you to give steroids to this asthmatic on average. Here's how long it took you to give pain meds to a child with fracture. So we have like certain things that we've agreed on in emergency medicine that are important benchmarks. And then we also have site benchmarks, left without being seen rate, uh, time to seeing the first patient so we can compare sites uh, across the network. So that is something that has been so useful to us. It, the funding from AHRQ stopped last year. Each site decided to continue to fund this at about $10,000 a year because it just made sense to continue this project because it's a wealth of data. You can also use the data for future studies because if you're collecting all data on every patient, you're also collecting lab values, et cetera. So instead of your research assistants having to go in and pull the data, the data is already there. So it's actually uh, economies of scale for future studies. So, so we've started doing that. Um, this is what they do. And I'm finishing up just to talk briefly about the international networks in Peds Emergency Medicine. There is one in Australia, there's one in Canada, there's one in South America, and there's one in Europe. And we uh, first all met in Amsterdam in 2009, and we did wrote a paper on H1N1 and some of the risk factors, that those kids that got really, really sick. And I believe that was like published in, oh, I don't know, the BMJ, I think, or something like that. And then um, we have met every year, and it, we, we don't go looking for funding for these studies because they're so huge. You have like 100 countries involved in these studies. But you, know, you can look at practice variation around the world and, 
um, in bronchiolitis and toxicology and things like that and look at trends. So, so that's, that's kind of our, our next movement. We're moving in that direction as well as in the movement to, in, the, in the direction of quality improvement. And we're also moving in the direction of um, developing future investigators. We bring fellows and junior faculty from even outside our institutions once a year to our meetings. And we have, have them meet with NIH program officers and have them present their research. And we've had three of them come now with concepts to PCARN and one has been funded. So um, thank you very much. Uh, if you have any questions, but thanks for having me.